All right. Hey, I want to start off our time with uh, some verses that I hope will help all of us have a greater understanding and a better perspective of whose presence we're in and who it is that we've gathered to worship today, February the 18th, 2024. Uh, The first are some very familiar words from the Apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, someone say through him, all things were made. Without him, someone say without him, nothing was made that has been made. Question, through him what? All things were made. Without him what? Nothing was made that has been made. And that's pretty crazy, right, if you think about it. Understand, all things that exist, from the smallest to the largest, exist because of him and were created by and through him, by and through Jesus. Uh, That means that Jesus created things like your heart, perfectly designed to pump 2,000 gallons of blood each day. Uh, That means that Jesus created your lungs, Uh, designed to filter oxygen out of the air you breathe. Your lungs contain 300 billion capillaries, and your entire blood supply washes through your lungs every few minutes. It it means that that God created your brain. And the adult brain, I count it, has 100,000 billion electrical connections, more than all the electrical appliances in the world. It, it, It means that Jesus created your DNA, Check this out. If the DNA in one of your cells were uncooled and stretched out, it would be about seven feet long, and you could not even see it with an electron microscope. And if all the DNA in your body were placed end to end, it would stretch from here to the moon 500,000 times. If all the coded information in all that DNA was put in typewritten form, it would fill the Grand Canyon 50 times. The psalmist was right. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Turn to the person to your right and say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Husbands and wife, hope that worked out for you. Some guys are a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. From the smallest things to the largest things. David writes in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display the work of his hands. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Uh, They speak without a sound or word. Their their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone on out to all the earth and their words to all the world. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Remember, Grover, it was by Jesus and through Jesus that all of the heavens came into existence. Yes, there was a time when the heavens were not. And that God spoke and the heavens became. Things like the earth were created. A planet like no other, full of breathtaking beauty, wonder, and life. Like life is everywhere. 
<laughs> the earth is a, is a big rock, 24,000 plus miles around. And yet, one million earths would fit inside of the sun, our closest star. I'd say the sun is pretty big. It's 93 million miles away, and it warms up our planet. Its huge flames jump up as high as, as 1,000 miles in the air. If it, was, if it was further away, we would freeze to death. If it was closer, we would burn up. But as big as the sun is, there's some stars that are so big that 500 million suns would fit inside of them. The nearest star to the earth is Alpha Centauri. It's four and a half light years away. One light year equals six trillion miles. Uh, that means if you traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, even though you would reach the moon in one and a half seconds, you reach the sun in eight and a half seconds, it would take you four and a half years to reach Alpha Centauri. If you traveled at 24,000 miles per hour, it would take you 120,000 years to get there. Uh, let me try to illustrate that vastness in another way. Like, if right here is the earth, three feet would be the furthest planet, the middle of the parking lot would be the sun, and Alpha Centauri would be in Norfolk. That's how big, that's how vast. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. The star Betelgeuse is 520 years 520 light years away. Its diameter is 310 million miles, which means the earth could actually revolve around the sun inside of that star. Our solar system is called the Milky Way. It's 100,000 light years in diameter. And again, one light year equals 6 trillion miles. You multiply 100,000 times 6 trillion, you get 6 quintillion miles. Uh, that's, that's number 6 with 18 zeros after it. That's how long the Milky Way is. It has somewhere between 750 billion and a trillion stars. And the Milky Way is just one, see, there we are, of the approximately 300 billion galaxies. Milky Way is one galaxy among about 300 billion galaxies out there. Like, these are all galaxies. And, and listen, uh, the vastness of the universe is not a statement about us. It's a statement about the greatness of our God. Amen? David nailed it. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And I said, all these planets, all these stars, all these galaxies are constantly moving through space. Designed with beauty and symmetry. Our own earth travels 66,000 miles every, every hour. Which means every day, you and I travel one and a half million miles through space. I guess you have a right to be tired at the end of the day. The beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And you know, a thought hit me Thursday morning I was, I was, as I was typing at all this God is great stuff. Am I spending too much time talking about the greatness of God before I even get to my text. And I quickly push that aside. Because church, it is good, appropriate, and needed to talk about the greatness of our God. To remind ourselves, because it's so easy to forget who our, who our God is and who it is that we have gathered to worship. Yes, it's good, appropriate, and needed to remind ourselves 
of, of who it is that we pray to, of who it is that we serve, of who it is that put on flesh 2,000 years ago and died on the cross, of who it is that breathed the words we'll study today, who it is. He is an incomprehensible, indescribable, uncontainable, incomparable, unchangeable, untamable, always been, always will be God. Amen? He's great. Are you kidding me? Check out this quote from A.W. Tozer. Listen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart considers God to be like. He writes, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most reeling thing about a church is her idea of God. The most important thing, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you. God, we're in all of your greatness. I mean, angels cover their eyes not to see you. God, you spoke and everything came into existence. Even now you hold our planet in your hands as it revolves around the sun, spinning around its axis. God, you create the smallest thing and the largest thing. You're great and you're mighty and you're holy and you're good. And God, I pray as we lean into your word this morning, God, that you help us. You deserve our attention. You deserve our best. You deserve our worship. God, forgive us for losing our awe and wonder about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And John tells us that 2,000 years ago, that word that was with God and, and was God, uh, that word that created all things, put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. I mean, people got to see God with their own eyes, hear God with their own ears. Could you even imagine? And then John tells us that Jesus, the creator, that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to his own, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In other words, Jesus came to the Jewish people, people who have been waiting for the Messiah for 20 plus centuries, and not only did they not receive him, they, they hated him, they rejected him, they were threatened by him, and they ultimately crucified him. Remember, that is where we are in our verse-by-verse verse study of Matthew's gospel. The Jewish people, the religious leaders, even after seeing all the miracles, hearing all the teaching about the kingdom, want Jesus dead, destroyed, wiped off the face of the planet. And listen, in our text this morning, 
Matthew 12, 22 through 32, we'll see this rejection in bold and vivid color. As the religious leaders claim that, that not only is Jesus not of God, but that Jesus is actually working for the kingdom of Satan. And understand, this rejection would and did cost them greatly. It, it cost them everything. It cost them the kingdom. In fact, in Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable about this very thing that paints a picture of what it cost them to reject Jesus. It's known as the parable of the tenants. A guy plants a vineyard, and he hires out some tenants to work it. And then he goes on a journey. At harvest time, he sends some of his servants to get some of his fruit. And the tenants, they, they seize the servants, they beat one, they kill one, and they stone the third. So he sends more servants to do the same thing. And finally, he says, you know what, I'm going to send my son. Surely they will respect my son. His son shows up. They kick him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. Then after telling this parable, Jesus asked the religious leaders a question. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And here's their answer. They, they should answer differently. <laughs> he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never, never read? He loves saying that, these scholars. Have you never, never read? Go and learn. Have you never, never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who, who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they're afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Understand, this is a context for a text this morning. The great rejection of both the king and his kingdom by the Jewish leaders and the nation. Our text begins right after Jesus left the synagogue after healing the guy with the withered hand. We talked about that a few weeks back. And when he told the, and when he told the religious leaders that, that he, not them, that he, not their rules, that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. The response, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Matthew 12, 14. So Jesus leaves that place, after hearing that hand, and a large crowd, and a large crowd follows him. And in that crowd were a bunch of religious leaders who've come up with a plan that they think will destroy Jesus. Now, I've broken down our text into four snapshots. His miracle, verse 22. The crowd's question, verse 23. The religious leader's accusation, verse 24, and Jesus' response, verses 25 through 32. Now, before we jump into that, in order to get your blood flowing, we're going to take two and welcome those around you. Amen. Bring it, Steve. <laughs> Bring it. 
Amen. All right, good job. And I am not going to take it personally that there's so much more energy and excitement when you're doing that than when you're listening to the Word of God. (laughs) All right, hey, let's do this. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, his miracle. Uh, Matthew writes, then they, uh, a question, who, who, are the, who are the they? Well, they're the Pharisees who, who wanted to kill Jesus. And Mark tells us that actually some scribes came from Jerusalem and joined in this crowd to take Jesus out. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man. And now demons are fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion, and now they work for the kingdom of Satan. And, the, and they're waging war against God and against those God so loves. Then he brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, question, so why are the religious leaders bringing this particular demon-possessed guy to Jesus? Well, obviously it's a setup, right? You see, they thought they had Jesus in a lose-lose situation. If he, if he heals the guy, they can say, hey, you broke the Sabbath. If he's unable to heal the guy, they can say, hey, look, he can't heal this guy. Therefore, he's not the Messiah. He's a fake. He's a fraud. And I think these guys are pretty confident that what would happen, Jesus would not be able to heal this guy, this particular guy. Okay, let's, let's do a, a brief demon sidebar. Understand, just as the Spirit of God can indwell a believer, so too can a demonic spirit indwell the bodies of unbelievers. A Jesus follower cannot be possessed by a demon. I don't care what you ever heard before, a, a Jesus follower cannot be possessed by a demon. God's Spirit's inside of us, and he ain't putting up with it, all right? Now, we can be oppressed by demonic forces, but a demon cannot take possession of us. That's good news, right? And listen, just as the Spirit of God in us produces good fruit, uh, the spirit of a demon, a demon inside of an unbeliever produces bad fruit, bad behavior, negative effects. In fact, over time, the demon's presence in the person degrades a person's mental and physical state, leading to bizarre behavior. Uh, like the guy we met in Matthew chapter 8. Remember the demon-possessed guy who lived in the graveyards, didn't wear any clothes, and, and, and he cried out all night long, cutting himself with pieces of stone? Well, apparently this guy in our text is in the latter stage of demon possession, and the demon has actually caused him to be both blind and mute. And listen, once a demon has finished with a person... And they're ready to move on. A demon will want that person to take their life. Because as we learned in an earlier conversation in our study, a demon can only leave a human body when the body dies or they're cast out by the power of God. Now, a Jewish exorcist, and there were some at the time, Jesus refers to them. We meet some in the book of Acts. Josephus, the Jewish historian, brings them up. And the way they did it, you know, they knew that they had, I had to find the name of the demon. I'm going to find the name of the demon, then I can cast you out. 
Remember Jesus in Mark 8? He said, what is your name? And they said, Legion. So in order to cast out a demon, you have to know his name, according to the Jewish exorcist. And so in bringing a blind, mute man to Jesus, they're thinking, hey, if this demon can't tell Jesus his name, then Jesus will not be able to cast him out. Again, I really think these guys were banking on Jesus failing here. And then they could say, hey, this guy cannot be the Messiah because he's unable to do the things that the Messiah is supposed to be able to do. And again, remember, remember from an, our earlier study in Matthew 9 that the opening of blind eyes and the healing of a mute tongue were reserved for Jesus. Like there's no indication in Scripture of that happening before Jesus or after Jesus. Uh, these things were to be earmarks of the Messiah's ministry. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. And that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf stop. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So they bring this demon-possessed guy to Jesus, and Jesus casts the demon out, and the guy can see, and the guy can now speak. And you know, as I was thinking about this week, about how this demon wanted to make this guy blind and unable to speak, it kind of hit me that Satan still works the same way today. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 that Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. He blinds their eyes. He doesn't want to see it. And I think he gets, also he gets believers not to speak the truths of the gospel because he knows that unbelievers cannot hear the gospel unless someone actually tells them the gospel. Satan blinds unbelievers and he gets Jesus' followers not to speak. So Jesus casts out the demon. The man can now speak and hear. Speak and see. Then Matthew writes, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Okay, the crowds are astonished. Why are they astonished? Because they know that the healing of the blind and the mute were miraculous activities that would accompany the Messiah. In him alone. Like they've never seen things like this before. But I think also along with their astonishment is a little bit of confusion and uncertainty. So they ask, could this be the son of David? Son of David equals the Messiah equals the kingdom. So what they're saying in that question is, hey, could this be the king and could this actually be his kingdom? Now, the word that's translated could is the Greek word metis, and it's often expressed, it's used to express a question where you expect the answer to be a negative one. Matthew used this earlier, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. He says, grapes are not metis, grapes are not metis, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Of course not. So here's what I think is going on in the minds of the crowd. They see this guy healed. They see this miracle, and they're like, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's doing things I've never, we've never seen before. Things you would expect the Messiah to do. But where's the kingdom? 
Like, like where's the clash of swords? Where's the army? Where's the revolution? Where's the fire and fury? Where's the overthrow of the warming empire? Where's the crown? Where's the throne? I mean, this guy is a meek, humble, gentle, compassionate carpenter who runs around with poor people, eats with sinners, doesn't start riots, doesn't stir up people, won't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. What kind of warrior king is that? Can this be the Messiah? Is he the one? If you remember, John the Baptist asked the same question when he was in prison, right? Hey, are you the one? So they're like, this can't be the Messiah, can it? No, it can't be, but but look what he did. I don't know, maybe. It's like 80% no and 20% he's the Messiah. Like the 80% is no, thinking there's no way, he he doesn't fit our preconceived idea about the Messiah. The 20% of them are like, but yet, look what he does. Look what he's doing. Now, how do we explain the power to do such things? Well, in comes the Pharisees to answer that question for them. But when the Pharisees heard this, heard the people wondering, hey, is this the king in the kingdom? They're like, we cannot allow the people to entertain the idea that Jesus, this guy we want to kill, is a Messiah. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul that the, the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. So their, their accusation was, yes, Jesus has power. Yes, he can do miraculous things. But he's not the son of David. He's not the Messiah. And this is not the kingdom of God. Because this fellow, notice that he say his name. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that I think this is kind of snarky right here. That this fellow, that this fellow casts out demons. And so Jesus responds. His response is sevenfold. Now, morning he says, you're being illogical. Matthew writes, you know, Jesus knew their thoughts. See, they weren't taking this accusation of Jesus directly. They were working the crowd. Walk is among the crowd. Hey, I know he has power, but you know where he gets that power from? You know where he gets that power from? They're working the crowd. Working the crowd. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be what? Be ruined. And they knew that and seen that, heard about that firsthand, right? I mean, surely after Solomon died, David's son, third king of Israel, what happened to the kingdom? It split. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. They fought a civil war with each other for about 150 years. That civil war weakened both kingdoms such that Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and Babylon came in and destroyed the the southern kingdom. Understand, winning a war against a determined enemy is hard enough even if you're working together. But if you start fighting amongst yourselves, then you have no hope to prevail against that enemy. Bottom line, divided nations are always on a path to destruction. America, please take note, right? Division destroys a country. Division destroys homes. Division destroys churches. 
Have you ever seen division cause destruction in a home? Cause destruction in a church? Probably no greater sin in the church, right, than causing division. That's why Paul told Titus in Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once, warn them twice, after that, have nothing to do with them. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? In other words, Jesus is saying, Satan is not going to be fighting himself. If Satan used his power to drive out demons, it would imply that the demons were possessing people that Satan did not want them to possess. And this would mean that they were rebelling against his authority. See, the very idea that Satan would cast out a demon was pure nonsense. Satan is crafty and cunning. He's not stupid. Except in rebelling against God. <laughs> and don't come after me harder for that, Satan. Next, Jesus says, you're acting hypocritically. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Understand, the Pharisees were well known for, for uh, detailed demonology, for their claims to cast out demons, and they had students or pupils who took on that same task. And actually, the word there for people is, is the word for sons. So Jesus said, hey, look, okay, okay, so if you're saying that it's only by the power of Satan that people can do this, but you got people doing it, your own sons, your own followers, your own students, your own disciples are doing this, are you going to say that they're using the power of Satan too? Jesus is smart. He says, it's illogical, it's hypocritical. And third, he says, the kingdom has come upon you. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If my power does not come from Satan, which I proved to you it didn't, then it's by the Spirit of God, which means that the kingdom of God has come upon you, which means the king is here. Yes, I am the promised king of David. Understand, the unavoidable conclusion in that moment was that Jesus performed a messianic miracle, and therefore Jesus was the Messiah. And if Jesus was the Messiah, then the kingdom had come to Israel. And the, and the only reasonable and acceptable response to the kingdom is to embrace the king and enter into his reign. The only reasonable and acceptable response to the kingdom is to embrace the king and enter into his reign. Amen? But instead, the people choose to accept the ridiculous explanation offered by Jesus' enemies. They choose to believe that the miracle done by the power of the Spirit of God was actually a work done by the power of Satan. And as they did, they lost their kingdom. Next, Jesus says, I am stronger than Satan. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? Unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder the house. Jesus says, how could someone enter a strong man's house and carry off the man's possessions without first binding the strong man? And then you can take his possessions. And if he's able to bind the strong man, then he is actually what? He's stronger than that strong man. See, in the parable, Satan is a, is a strong man and Satan's house is the world. And Jesus is the one who comes into Satan's home. He comes into the world to plunder Satan's possessions by freeing people from the power of sin. 
Jesus brings healing and hope and joy and the promise of eternal life to the lost and dying world, freeing us from the dominion of Satan. Jesus came, among other things, to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the works of Satan, to destroy the works of sin, the works of shame, and to set people free from his dominion of darkness. That's what Paul said in Colossians 1 verse 13. For he has rescued us, Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us, someone say, for he has rescued us, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, he came to destroy the works of Satan. In that same book, Colossians, in Colossians 2.15, Paul says that Jesus disarmed, he disarmed the powers and authorities, and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over the cross. He disarmed them, took away their weapons. They had no more power anymore because of what Jesus did on the cross. I mean, I love that picture of Jesus entering Satan's house, entering his domain in this world, tying him up, and setting people free. Amen? That's a good picture. Jesus is stronger than Satan. The one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. First John 4, 4. Then Jesus says, there is zero neutral ground with me. Whoever is not with me is what? Is what? Whoever does that gather with me scatters. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. Uh, There is no Switzerland. There is no neutral. There is no third choice. And the religious leaders and all through the nation had made their choice and they chose to be against him. Please consider the ramifications of Jesus' statement. You're either for him or you're against him. There's before faith and there's after faith. And before faith, we are enemies of God. Because we oppose the one sent for us, Jesus Christ. Understand, someone can be a good person in many ways. Kind, caring, loving, and compassionate. Uh, But until they surrender to Jesus, they are an enemy of God. Understand, the person who sits on the fence when it comes to Jesus, they may see themselves as a neutral party. But God sees them as an enemy. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5. Talking about how Christ came and died for us while we were yet sinners. Or powerless to save ourselves. Then he says this in verse 10. For if while we were sinners. No, excuse me. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life. I understand anyone who does not surrender to the king and embrace the kingdom is an enemy of God. There is no neutral ground. Jesus says either for me or you're against me. Get it? Good. We don't necessarily want to get it, but it's the truth of God's word. Next, Jesus says, and so I tell you, every sin, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Anyone who, who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here we come to what is known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. And I want to talk about the last part of verses 31 32 and come back and grab at the end every kind of sin can be forgiven. And first talk a little bit about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But I do want to talk about the first part because the first part kind of gets missed because they're so jolted by this idea of a sin that's unforgivable. Now there's two common views of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know, question whether an act a person is doing or or a movement is actually of the Holy Spirit. You're saying, I don't know if that's, well, you're doing that, you're saying you're doing those things, you know, you're out there throwing Holy Spirit snowballs and people are falling on the ground and you're questioning that. I don't know, you may, may not want to do that. I've had people say that to me, actually. You could be by the Holy Spirit. Or some people say, hey, you know what, it's just a sin of rejecting and refusing to believe in Jesus. Well, I, I really don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm going to share with you my understanding, okay? Um, I'm, just the points, it won't take long. I actually, all these things that will come up on the screen, I got over there on that table there, I have I printed them out so you can look at it and think about it. Here's how I'm processing what this is actually talking about. Okay, so Jesus is addressing the nation through her leaders, which was a common practice. Uh, they saw the miracles, but said it was done through Satan. Jesus said, you can say this about me, but not about the Holy Spirit. If you as the nation continue in this position when the Holy Spirit comes and establishes the church, and you look at the church and the apostolic miracles and say, this is the kingdom of Satan, it will not be forgiven. Note, a Christian could not and would not ever say the church is the kingdom of Satan. Right? That would never say that. Could an individual ever take the position that Jesus and the church is not of God, but of the evil one and still be saved? The guy who wrote most of the New Testament is a guy named Paul. And, and, and Paul actually shares in those verses I listed there, saying, you know what, I, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. And why did Paul persecute the church? Because he thought it was not of God. I have to stop this, this movement. He was there when Steve even was stuck. Everybody laid a code at Paul's feet because he was kind of in charge. Paul got letters of Christians arrested. He had them killed and put in jail because he thought that the church was not of God. I contend that Paul is saved. <laughs> and Timothy said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. All right? The blessed Holy Spirit, unforgivable sin is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament besides the Gospels. Now, you would think that if an individual could commit this sin, that, that maybe Peter or John or James or Jude, somebody would kind of bring that up. They didn't. In Acts chapter 2, thousands are gathered, and they're, they're all invited to repent. Like Peter didn't have an asterisk. Uh, repent for the gift of your sins unless you commit it to bless your Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. In fact... This idea that Jesus was from the kingdom of Satan became the official Jewish view of Jesus in the Mishnah. That Jesus was an illegitimate child taken to Egypt where he learned the black arts and came back and with demonic power and he deceived the people. 
Jesus said in that parable we did earlier, remember where they killed the son? He said, therefore, Matthew 21, 43, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And that's what happened. See, my understanding, and I could be wrong because people, but my understanding and my current belief is that the Black Holy Spirit was a sin committed by the Jewish national religion. And it wasn't forgiven. Because what happened in 70 AD? Rome came in, destroyed the city. There's no more temple. There's no more priesthood. The kingdom was taken away. So I contend that that's the sin. An individual can't commit it. A sin was already committed by the Jewish nation when they decided to kill the son and say his work was not of God and was of Satan. And the sheets have all this on there. I know that's really quick. But always remember the real biblical interpretation. You interpret the obscure and difficult in light of the clear teaching elsewhere. Bottom line, individual cannot commit unforgivable sin. And that's my thoughts on a tough passage, right, for what it's worth. But if you ever thought you, and see, because I think people get so jolted by, oh my gosh, that they missed the first part? Where Jesus said, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. We get so caught up, oh my, we forget the first part. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. And that's good news, right? And Paul writes this as we wrap up. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blame, blemish, and free from accusation. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And check this out in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Because he's, he's saying, hey, you know, you know, he said, and book of Hebrews was about a bunch of people wanting to go back to the Jewish religion. And leave Christ. And he's like, we got a better priest. we got a better temple. That, that's not a good idea. Here's what he says. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest came, he offered for all time one sacrifice for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Every sin in this room can be forgiven. Amen. Every sin can be forgiven. If you've never surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're you're right now an enemy of God, you can surrender him this morning. If you believe in who he is, you repent of your sins, say, I want to serve you and not me. And then you get buried in the waters of baptistry, buried with Christ and arise and live a new life. You do not have to walk out of this room still in your sin. And if you're a Christian who has sinned, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, we agree with God, that's wrong, I shouldn't do it, I don't want to do it, he is faithful and just, Forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Okay, a few important takeaways. These will be real simple. Not in your notes. Take a picture of them. All right. 
And I made the slide this morning because my slide girl's in Virginia Tech visiting her brother. Don't let your perceived, your perceived idea about Jesus keep you from seeing who Jesus really is. The crowd did that, right? You know, don't get this image of Jesus. Well, Jesus would never do that. He would never say that. Don't get an idea in your mind that keeps you from seeing who Jesus really is. Jesus is stronger than the evil one. And he's stronger than anything that will ever come against you. Good news, right? There's zero neutral ground with Jesus. I don't take pleasure in writing this statement here. We're either God's child or we are God's enemy. There's, there's no middle ground. That's the way it is. Yeah. That's the way it is. And Jesus did everything he could so you wouldn't be God's enemy. Every kind of sin can be forgiven. There is no unforgivable sin for an individual. Okay, I think those are some important takeaways. And I know, you know, the study of Matthew, we get down. You know, we study deep. We don't skip things. You know, a lot to think on, but hey, would you go back to that takeaway slide? But you're thinking, hey, why didn't you just come up and say that? <laughs> hey, cancel the sermon, come up and say that. We could be here a whole lot earlier. Yeah, maybe. Okay. See, but now you got all that information that makes that even more powerful, right? But anyhow, you know, those takeaways I think are really important for us. And we're going to sing a song, and we do that every week as we prepare for communion. And the song we're going to sing, you know, is the Father's house. You know, and, and that, there's such a powerful line, you know, check your shame at the door because it ain't welcome anymore. You know, God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants to spend eternity with you. Jesus does not want you to be his enemy. He died on the cross so that you could be God's child. If you're struggling with some sin, you're struggling, if you're a Christian, think you're not forgiven, God forgives when we ask and we mean it. it don't, when you feel regret for past sins, that is not from God, that's from the devil. Amen? He wants to beat you up. If you're sorry, you want to do better, yeah, you still may mess up, but you really want to do better, God forgives you. That's our God. That's how he works. That's how he rolls, right? He doesn't load the regret on us. That's from the devil. So it, some of you, I think, today need to check your shame at the door. And tell that shame and regret from the enemy that it's not welcome anymore. And then after we sing the song, we're going to grab uh, our stuff for communion. You can see the stations there. But would you guys stand? I'm going to pray us into the song. God, we love you. Oh, God. Jesus, thank you for coming 2,000 years ago. Thank you for entering the strong man's house and binding him up and setting me free. Thank you for paying for our debt. Thank you for loving us we're unlovely. And God, I pray as we sing this song that it, it becomes a time of celebration. Know that in the Father's house, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation, there's no shame. There's grace, forgiveness, and truth. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Spirit, stir and move in us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.